Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 26th, 2022. Um, what else happens on a Friday except headlines about ex-president Trump seems to be almost seems to be still president in the sense that we never can get him off our chest for one reason or another. Justice Department today released the affidavit used in the Mar-a-Lago search. According to the Times, the Wall Street, uh, the Washington Post uh, also goes with this headline today. And even the Wall Street Journal, which does tends to be certainly to the right of those two papers, uh, leads with the story. Uh, the Washington Post columnist, Dana Milbank, who's actually my guest today, uh, wrote a couple of days ago about another Republican liars born. They seem to be born every day these days, at least according to Milbank. Um, he has also noted, uh, warned us at the beginning of the month that the GOP hysteria over the Mar-a-Lago search is an invitation to violence. I don't think many people would argue with that. Uh, for him, the Republicans have gone bananas. He described it rather humorously, but ominously as well as a, as a new fashion line. And for, for Maybank, uh, not for Maybank, for Milbank, um, this is a, a long-term thing. He suggests that Liz Cheney's demise um, at the hands of the Trumpists was set in motion by her father. Uh, Milbank has a book out about this now, a new book, The De- Destructionists, not The Deconstructionists, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party sounds like a marriage of some sort. And I'm thrilled that Dana is joining us from Washington, D.C. Dana, welcome. Congratulations on the book. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be with um, you. And it's a real honor, thrill. I'm a big fan, big uh, Thank you. reader of your work. You're, you're, you're ubiquitous, Dana. How do you manage it? <laughs> you manufacture well, that's a- outrage. Are you, you seem a very nice guy. Are you perpetually outraged by this Trump madness? I try not to be, Andrew. In fact, I have to take my avert my gaze from uh, the news because if you keep uh, keep at this uh, 24 hours a day, it's uh, it's just not good for the uh, the blood pressure. So um, I do try to uh, limit the outrage to my uh, professional life and uh, uh, keep it to a minimum in my personal life. So uh, I I will attempt to uh, remain a nice guy throughout our interview. Uh, well, I think you are a nice guy. I think some of your warnings are very credible and important. Your your piece on the hysteria over the Mar-a-Lago search being an invitation to violence was quite chilling. Uh, you, you're right. I would like nothing more to, to be wrong about this, but the reckless response by the GOP Fox News access to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago makes it feel as if we're falling into the abyss. Haven't we fallen into the abyss, um, Dana? It seems like every day we fall into a new abyss. I don't know. Yeah, we're sort of we're sort of swirling a little further layers down uh, into the abyss. Yeah, I mean, since I wrote that, it, obviously it was it was very clear that this kind of violent rhetoric in the past has resulted in actual violence, and indeed that uh, that was before uh, we saw 
uh, what happened out in Ohio, this guy uh, coming in and uh, prepared to shoot up an FBI uh, field office there and was uh, ultimately uh, killed himself after after a standoff. But uh, I mean, it, it's, it seems almost impossible that this would not happen uh, you know, when, when you're uh, using that kind of rhetoric, saying, uh, uh, telling people essentially to panic, to be desperate, saying they're coming after you. The FBI is coming for you. Today it's Trump. Tomorrow it's you. They're coming to take your guns, you know, things like that. Well, you know, of course, the, the idea is to mobilize voters, but it, it all it takes is one unhinged person to be mobilized uh, in a very different way. And, it, it, you know, it, it's Well, there aren't any unhinged people in America, are there, Dana? I, there only has to be one or two. I suspect we have a few more than that. But uh, um, you know, with the uh, you know, if there's anything that's changed since the Oklahoma City bombing of of, of 1995, the explosives are lighter. They're easier to get. Uh, the weapons are easier to get and more deadly. Uh, so you know, it doesn't take. Uh, you know, there may indeed be people uh, uh, conspiring in terms of groups and uh, extremist groups, but it really just takes one person uh, in his basement with a 3D printer, uh, and he can cause all kinds of uh, mayhem and bloodshed. Dana, you go back to 95, the Oklahoma bombing, uh, true outrage. You talk in the destructionists about the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Uh, With my math, that's about, uh, what, uh, 1997 are we talking about was there a particular moment when this 25 year crack up began yeah i mean i i take it back to the republican revolution of 1994 they took power uh in uh, uh 1995 and that it's that quarter century through the end of the uh, uh trump presidency of course the crack up has only continued <laughs> since then uh and indeed accelerated but the reason i uh went back to uh that gingrich era you could have picked an earlier point too uh, uh depending on what you're looking at but this was a time when the rhetoric uh fundamentally changed when uh gingrich sort of pioneered this idea of speaking about your opponents as the enemy, uh, uh, calling them traitors, saying they are, you know, out here to destroy uh, the country. Uh, This was also a time when uh, demographics shifted uh, fundamentally. The Democrats lost their Southern majority. There were no more of these uh, Southern Democratic uh, uh, segregationists as there were at one point. The parties became realigned along uh, racial lines. It was also when there was a lot of, you know, uh, anti-government rhetoric. It shifted from being sort of the limited government, uh, genial rhetoric of the Reagan years to really fiercely anti-government. A lot of this talk, as we were just talking about, uh, you know, coming after you, uh, coming to seize your guns and, and, and encouraging people to be violent uh, in response, reaching out to the militia movement, these uh, uh, patriots groups uh, on the on the right uh, fringe. Uh, and it was also a beginning of this new era of uh, disinformation, uh, you know, using conspiracy theories as a political weapon uh, increasingly that was being done at the highest levels of the Republican Party. This is also when, you know, we think of our dysfunctional politics now. That's really when it began with the uh, all of the shutdowns and the, the debt defaults and just sort of the constant throwing of sand in the gears of government. So, I, I, you know, Newt Gingrich pioneered a lot of this. Uh, iterations uh, of uh, this since then have, have gotten worse uh, and worse, but uh, Gingrich himself is still very much on the scene. 
We did a show, and I'm sure you're familiar with Julian Zelizer's book on New yes, Cambridge, yes. Uh, Burning the House Down. Zelizer teaches history at Princeton and was also the editor of a new book on, on Trump. What is it, in your view, uh, Dana, about Newt that made him this new man? I mean, he seems, and he presents himself as very much of an all-American. Uh, what about what was it about yeah. Gingrich? And, uh, what is yes. it about Gingrich that made him or makes him so new as the model for this right. new Republican? Right. Well, and I, I, I cited uh, Julian Zelzer's book quite a bit. It's uh, it is uh, excellent. And uh, uh, so Newt Gingrich. Uh, uh, it was a it was a generational shift when he uh, took power. He was uh, you know, the, the people who dominated Congress for more than a generation before that were uh, those of the greatest generation. They had fought in World War II together. They knew that the guy across the aisle uh, was not their enemy. It was their political opponent. They disagreed, but they all loved their country. Uh, Newt Gingrich came in with a fundamentally different view that the those on the other side were traitors to their country. were uh, were not uh, did not love their country. Uh, he said uh, before he became a speaker of the House that uh, one of the major problems with the Republican Party is they don't teach you to be nasty enough. Uh, and he set about uh, changing that. Um, uh, you know, he uh, uh, brought down uh, Jim Wright, a Democratic Speaker of the House, with a bunch of ethics allegations that, at least in their original incarnation, turned out not to be true, but it created this uh, feeding frenzy. Uh, he went after uh, the next Democratic speaker, uh, Tom Foley, with uh, uh, a whole bunch of uh, sexual innuendo and personal innuendo. Uh, and uh, he basically kicked out uh, Bob Michael, who had been the Republican House leader all through the Reagan years, uh, uh, you know, a, a genial guy who uh, knew that your opponents were not your enemies and was all about, you know, working out, hammering out deals, getting the Reagan agenda uh, through the House. Uh, and he didn't like uh, Newt Gingrich's uh, pyrotechnics. So this was a fundamentally different way of viewing politics. It was war by other means. Uh, uh, Newt liked to uh, cite that, uh, uh, that phrase. Yeah, uh, I mean, he, and, was, um, he was an amateur historian of, of war as well. You mentioned the word uh, traitor and the way in which the Republicans threw that word or continue to throw the word around. The left is also doing the same. Mm -hmm. We had David Rothkopf. I'm sure you know him. Yes, uh, yeah. He was on the show last year. He has a book out about the Republican Party now as a party of traitors. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that, um, Dana? Are they, yeah. have the, have, has the party that uses the word traitor itself become traitorous? Um, look, I mean, I, th I think on a number of these things, uh, you know, people can come back and say, well, the Democrats do it too. Um, the left does it too. And of course that's true. I mean, there are, you know, people on the left and Democrats are all these things I've said, they can be accused of, you know, the, uh, dysfunction, the demonizing of the opposition, uh, racism, uh, violent, uh, extremism. Uh, it's a matter of degree and of, you know, from what levels uh, of the uh, of the party is this coming from? Uh, there's no equivalent uh, uh, among Democratic leadership in any of those categories um, I just discussed. You know, the, the notion of traitors, I mean, I, there's a very specific event, January 6th, that brought about this question of, uh, you know, sedition, 
uh, more accurate. Uh, being more accurate than treason because it wasn't a foreign power involved. But both of these were very relevant concept. It wasn't uh, as Trump was doing. He was saying that people who did not applaud for him during the State of the Union were treasonous. Uh, Democrats were treasonous. Uh, Republicans who didn't agree with him were treasonous. Um, uh, The media was uh, treasonous. So I I think uh, in one sense, it's being used by Rothkopf and others. And I've I've used the word at times in a very specific way, uh, uh, raising a very specific question as opposed to just being tossed out and saying, rather than saying, I disagree with you, you are a traitor to your country. My concern over your thesis um, Dana, is that why begin with uh, why begin with uh, Gingrich? We had mm-hmm. um, sorry, we had um, Kevin Boyle, another distinguished contemporary American historian, on the show, suggesting that it all stems from Nixon and the Nixon mm-hmm. years. He, he's written an interesting new book, "The Shattering America in the 1960s." Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Rick Perlstein, who's written a wonderful book on Nixon, now has a new mm-hmm. book out on. Reagan called Reagan mm-hmm. Reagan land. He says it all began mm-hmm. with Reagan. I mean, what's the difference between Gingrich, Nixon, and Reagan? Mm-hmm. Well, look, and you could go back further and say um, it was Goldwater. Um, I, so I, I'm not really at odds with anything uh, those people are arguing. Uh, you know, what's happening now uh, in the Republican Party in the United States is very much a reaction uh, to changes that uh, occurred in the 1960s with the Voting Rights Act, with the Civil Rights Act, uh, with the uh, Immigration Act. Um, you know, basically, the immigration uh, law set us on a course to be a white um, a minority nation. They may not have known for sure that's what was happening at the time, but that's what it set us on the course for that. Uh, and the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act essentially made us a true democracy for the first time uh, in the 1960s. It, it really wasn't that before. What's happening since then is a uh, reaction to that, a backlash uh, of uh, white Americans who perceive that they're losing their place in this country, particularly white men, non-college educated men uh, who have flocked to the Republican Party, have been welcomed into the Republican Party, and I, I believe are being you know, lied to with uh, things such as the uh, great replacement conspiracy theory, that there's some deliberate effort underway to uh, uh, marginalize, uh, displace, and, and make them uh, disappear. Uh, and that's uh, that. That's the strength of uh, the Republican base and, and Trump's base. Is a lot of people uh, full of paranoia uh, and fear right now. So, uh, so in, in in that sense, I agree with uh, what uh, the uh, these historians have said about you know starting from an earlier point in history. Nixon had uh, his Southern strategy. The reason I uh, take the Republican Revolution is because that's when uh, uh, it all bore fruit. That's when uh, the realignment of the parties took place. Uh, That's when an entirely new language of politics began. That's when the dysfunction uh, really began. That's when the, uh, uh, the the white nationalists and the the violent right wing extremists began to be really admitted uh, into the party in a substantial way, uh, where they weren't before. So, uh, I, you know, I think it's a matter of degree. I, you know, there are obviously many antecedents that go well before uh, 1994, but that's when it all sort of crystallized, uh, and uh, we've been uh, on a bit of a, a spiral since then. To put it mildly, uh, we had John Carl, who's been on the show a couple of times, imagining the aftermath of the 
Trump presidency. Uh, you did a, a piece recently, or you were involved in a conversation on the, the Washington Post website about whether Trump is a symptom of GOP decline and a symptom of all this. Mm-hmm. How neatly does Trump himself come out of the, the Gingrich playbook? Well, uh, he's uh, the way I view Trump is uh, he is a, a a symptom. He's a reflection of where the Republican uh, Party was uh, before he came to power. So I first followed uh, Donald Trump around in 1999. He was thinking of running for the Reform Party nomination, you know, Ross Perot's uh, uh, old party, and he was going to be rivaled by uh, uh, Pat Buchanan for that nomination. He didn't ultimately wind up doing it, but he positioned himself himself as uh, he was for abortion rights, he was for uh, universal health care, he was all about uh, racial uh, harmony and tolerance, uh, going after Buchanan uh, for being a racist. Uh, He gave, uh, as as people know, a lot of money to uh, Democrats. Uh, uh, Donald Trump changed substantially, and you can see it through his speeches through the years. And uh, he changed very clearly in response to what was happening in the Republican Party, particularly with the Tea Party. Uh, uh, He saw the changes underway and essentially embraced a basket of issues that matches what the base was asking for uh, perfectly, and it begins with the uh, the birther movement that he on Fox News very much uh, led a- around 2010, 2011. Uh, this you know suggesting that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States, and then it leads into other notions that he's a a Muslim from from Africa. Uh, uh, so th- this was uh, um, Donald Trump is very much uh, a reflection. Uh, you know he's he's an opportunist. He's a he's a marketer. Uh, so he saw where the party was going, and he decided, you know, to be the drum major and get out uh, in front of it. And that's why um, uh, I, I argue that you know the, oh, these questions about is Trump still in control of the party are, I mean, they're interesting, but it's kind of misplaced because the real question is is Trumpism still in control of the party? And of course it is, uh, and it will remain in control of the party. Uh, long after Trump is gone, because it uh, the the uh, reasons for it were there before Trump arrived. I mentioned your piece on Liz Cheney's demise being set in motion by her father. If that's true, it's of course ironic, perhaps even tragic. There are others like Cheney who are opposed to the development in the Republican Party. We had a couple of local. Republican polls on the show a few months ago, Al Schmidt and Balki Vu. Mm-hmm. Uh, from um, Pennsylvania and from Atlanta, talking an anti-Trump game. Um, we had, and, I, and I'm, you're probably familiar with her work, Nancy Jacobson from No Labels, mm-hmm. saying that a 2024 Trump-Biden rematch would result in a real third-party candidate. To what extent is there real opposition within the Republican Party to this Trumpism, to the destructionists? And right. Does that offer politically, Dana, some potential mm-hmm. for a, a genuine third party candidate, especially as you say that there are elements mm-hmm. on the left as well, which are not perhaps right. quite as destructionist, but nonetheless along those yeah. lines? Yeah, look, about uh, 30% of uh, Republican voters don't particularly like Donald Trump, you know, and have sort of gone along with it because, uh, uh, you know, that will further 
the uh, whether it's the social or the economic policies that they believe in. So sort of holding their nose and uh, voting for Trump or voting for uh, Trump as candidates, but they don't like it very much. So in theory, uh, there's an opening there. Um, uh, in practice, uh, third parties have never worked. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, I'm I, I, I'm always hopeful, but I, <laughs> but I'm not uh, optimistic. Hope, but... uh, you would be help because you're. You seem to me to be, if not a big fan of Biden. You you certainly don't have a problem with Joe Biden. Would if it, if it, if there was a Biden Trump rematch, would you be sympathetic to a third party candidate? Uh, well, no, because uh, I mean, if if you look at you know Liz Cheney, for example, I mean, it, what she's done is very yeah. Admirable. I don't see if, her if, as the third. If she time. were to if she were to be that, that would that would uh, solidify uh, the uh, the uh, election of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, so third parties have been effective in our history in moving the politics in one direction or another. It's just the, the you know it's it's just stacked against them uh, in terms of actually changing. Now, a, a third party can rise up up and replace one of the two existing ones. We've seen that sort of thing happen. Um, I don't I don't see that we're on any path towards that. And the reason is that although there are 30 percent of Republicans are not on board with Trumpism or uh, with Trump, uh, that's not the majority. And the uh, leadership is entirely on board uh, with with Donald Trump for a variety of reasons. You know, we can go into, but because you know, you look at who uh, votes in uh, Republican primaries, which in you know ninety percent or or more of elections are the only uh, elections that matter, uh, uh, particularly on the Republican side, uh, and because of the dominance of, of Fox News, because of the dominance of social media, it just it, it's hard to see how that uh, minority of the Republican Party could ever. Uh, in, at least in the near term, uh, regain control. Very briefly, because we, we got to end now, um, Dana, you're on Twitter. You've got over 100, 120,000 followers. Um, you're clearly on the left. You know, you, of your 1,101 follow, the people you follow, uh, 135 I follow too. So, I mean, we mm -hmm. clearly are in the same camp. Um, we had John Rausch on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, redesigning the internet to be friendly to the truth. Is one mm -hmm. fix to all this? It's all of us stepping back from Twitter, from social media, switching <laughs> off MSNBC and yeah. and Fox, and perhaps even putting down the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Oh, bite your thing. bite your tongue, put down the Washington Post. <laughs> but um, no, there, there's something to what you say, Andrew. And I, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter as you point out, but I tweet out my uh, columns. Um, you know, occasionally I'll, you know, uh, I'll, I'll retweet, uh, you know, for when, when, uh, I'll retweet this show and other things that I do, or I'll, uh, retweet, Good. Well, uh, please. Retweet, 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 retweet other, uh, uh, columns and articles. Um, I don't, uh, engage it. it I, my, my presence on Twitter, uh, is very light and that's because I don't spend, uh, time there. I use it to disseminate, uh, information. I don't use it to, uh, gather, uh, information, uh, I'm not on uh, Facebook at all. Don't watch a lot of uh, uh, social media. Look, I think that would we would be much healthier as a culture for so many reasons if we could uh, uh, minimize uh, social media and, and minimize these influences. Uh, you know, another uh, part of the reason we've had this uh, decline in our. Uh, uh, discourse is because we've lost local media. Lo local newspapers have disappeared. At local uh, TV have, you know, there are basically very few resources for local journalism. Uh, and that that's what 
binds people together. That's what binds communities together. And sort of the nationalization uh, of news uh, has led to uh, polarization. Now, I argue that it's not really polarization. It's, it's very lopsided in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, which side has gone to the extreme, but there's no question, uh, but that the, uh, the, the the debate is polarized. There's there's very little that binds uh, Americans together. Now we need to replace that, and I think one way to do that is a lot more local media and a lot less social media. Let's end Dana with uh, some comment from you on destruction. Your new book, The Destructionist: The 25-Year Crackup of the Republican Party, is ominous. It's about, you know, destructionists are in one business, destruction, violence. And you warn about this abyss that America is flirting with, perhaps already in. We've done a number of shows on the likelihood of civil war in America, one with Barbara Walter, who believes we might avoid it, one with Stephen Marsh, who believes we're already in it. What's your take on the imminence of this civil war, of destruction? How close are we uh, Mm -hmm. and how worried? In all seriousness, are you, Dana? Well, uh, Barbara Walters, a friend of mine, I I quoted her in uh, my book. Um, Look, I mean, I I think the threat is very serious. I mean, people hear civil war and they think we're going to, you know, line up in trenches. Like, you know, they're thinking of the American Civil War. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about armies marching against each other. We're talking about a period of protracted political violence. So, uh, 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 and that happens when a country, a democracy becomes destabilized, which is uh, clearly what's been happening here. So I, I do expect we're likely in for a period uh, of political violence. I think in the long run, we're going to get through this because, you know, there's generational change and demographic change. I just think, you know, for, uh, uh, but for the next, you know, couple of decades, this is going to be a very difficult and, and, uh, and possibly violent slog.